Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In the US, the trial of someone who used to be one of the world's richest people starts today. Used to being the key phrase. It looks like this will go down as one of the largest frauds in history, stealing customers' money and driving the company into bankruptcy. He's accused of stealing billions of dollars in deposits from his cryptocurrency company FTX to finance his hedge fund. How's he going to plead? Not guilty. Here's why. His two right-hand men have already pled guilty. I didn't knowingly commit fraud. I don't think I committed fraud. I don't think I tried to do anything wrong. I didn't want any of this to happen. Um, I was certainly not nearly as competent as I thought I was. Sam Bankman-Fried will be in the dock, facing charges including fraud and money laundering. But how did he go from being a darling of the booming cryptocurrency world with a net worth of over $20 billion to just another resident of the Brooklyn Metropolitan Detention Center? One man witnessed the whole thing. I had this privileged position. I met everybody involved. I interviewed everybody involved before and after it all fell apart. I can tell a better story than either side and include all the facts and then leave it to you, kind of the jury, to decide what you think of this. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, billion-dollar baby inside the fall of the world's youngest billionaire. My name is Michael Lewis. I am a writer. The books you might best know were the ones that were turned into movies. The Big Short, uh, Moneyball, The Blind Side. And I'm I'm the author of a book that's coming out this week that's called Going Infinite. Going Infinite is about the rise and fall of Sam Bankman-Fried, an American crypto tycoon who created the crypto exchange FTX, who made money faster than it's ever been made and lost money faster than it's ever been made, was just a couple of years ago the world's richest person under the age of 30. I was at his side for most of it and I've documented the story. So when did you first hear about Sam Bankman-Fried? When did he first come onto your radar? 
like many of my characters, completely accidentally. I had a call from a friend in September of 2021 saying, I'm in this odd situation, my friend said. My friend ran a, a big Wall Street firm. And he said, I'm about to exchange shares in our company for shares in this new crypto exchange called FTX. And it is the fastest growing financial firm I've ever seen. My problem is I don't have any kind of read on the guy who created it, Sam Bankman-Fried. Hmm. He said, you do this for a living. You like sit down and assess people's characters. Could you spend a little time with him and tell me whether it makes sense that, for us to do this? And I'd never heard of FTX. I'd never heard of Sam Bankman-Fried. A few weeks later, he showed up on the, on the front porch of my office in Berkeley, California. He tumbles out of an ordinary Uber, looking like he fell out of a dumpster. He had these wrinkled cargo shorts, these droopy white socks, a dirty t-shirt, and hair that, well, his hair is famous. People call it an afro, but it's not an afro, it's just a mess. And he is instantly, obviously bright, instantly, obviously full of insights, but instantly also obviously lacking any kind of pretension. Very easy to talk to. So I took him off on a hike. And at the end of the hike, I turned to him, I said, I don't know where this is going to go, but you're the, what I've just listened to the last two hours is some of the most extraordinary things I've ever heard. Can I just follow you to watch? And he said, sure. I also called my friend and said, sure, go ahead and exchange shares with him. What could go wrong? And what was it about that meeting? Was it him as a person, as a character, or was it what he was doing and developing with his crypto trading exchange? Maybe you might sort of explain what that is as well for the uninitiated, me. He had created this crypto exchange, FTX, and a crypto exchange is just a place where people come to trade crypto. Which is like Bitcoin and things. Yeah, you got Bitcoin and Ether and all the other, you know, there are thousands of these coins now. You come, yeah. you put down your money, they hold your money, and the way they make money is taking tiny little slices out of each transaction. And it had gone from being created in 2019 to generating in 2021 and 22 a billion dollars in, in revenues and almost half a billion dollars in profit. And it was just booming. He had gone from being basically worth zero to being worth, according to Forbes magazine, $22.5 billion inside of 18 months. Gosh. And Forbes magazine people said they'd never seen anybody make so much money so fast. That was interesting to me. And what animated Sam, he'd been attracted into the movement of effective altruism. He had set out to make the money in order to give it away. Like he hadn't set out to just make money and then discovered philanthropy. The whole purpose of his operation was to make as much money as possible, to give it away in very specific ways. And I thought that was strange. And, and someone like him who is who was riding on such an incredible wave of success at that moment in time, what must he have made of you? He's earning all these billions and billions of dollars, and yet he came to see you and agreed to have you follow him. Did you think that was odd? He was odd, so I wasn't surprised by anything he did. He never asked me once what I was doing or why. He never asked me, like, what am I going to write about? What's the book well, about? So he didn't know necessarily that this was going to be a book. He just thought you were an interested man who wanted to hang around for a while. <laughs> he knew I wrote books. He assumed that I was trying to write a book. So there's no contract, no, no kind no, of, no, you no, can no, talk no, about no. this, let's not get into this? or Not a thing. It was, you can come hang around and figure out what you want to do with this. That is crackers, isn't it? Even for some of the stories that you've reported on, that situation is crackers. So what's crackers about it is I've never had a subject who was so 
uh, indifferent. So you set about then on this mission trying to find out more about what he's up to, and I guess also delve into his past. What about his parents, his friends from his childhood years? Did you get access to them? So I told you he was a peculiar character, and here's a good example of how peculiar he is. When I asked him, give me a list of people who knew you between the ages of zero and 18, who could shed some light on what you were like during those years, he said, there's basically nobody. And I said, what do you mean there's nobody? He says, I didn't have any really social relationships. Yes, my parents, obviously, but then I had a little brother, but we didn't have much to do with each other. And I said, well, like teachers, friends at school. He said, I didn't really have any friends. And it was true. He had the most extraordinarily isolated childhood. I asked his brother about what Sam was like as a kid. He says, I don't really know. He was just a tenant in our house that he would shut himself in the room and we wouldn't speak very much. But the, the parents had, of course, of views about their child and they were very open about them. And they were academics, were they? They were both quite distinguished professors of law at Stanford. People had adored them. Sam's whole life had basically been spent on the Stanford campus where they lived. And I think his father briefly made some attempts to normalize Sam, like try to get him to play baseball and try to get him to do this or that, and realized that he was wasting his time. His mother was the one who picked up that Sam was really different. Neither one of them, interestingly, given how you know obviously bright they are, neither one of them had any sense that Sam was special, like gifted. And they had him in ordinary schools on ordinary tracks, and he was bored to tears right up to the seventh grade when he comes home one day and starts breaking down, sobbing, saying he's so bored with his entire life. And the mother at that point, she persuaded the school to create a special program in math for the kids who were good at math. And at that moment, Sam kind of discovered that he had aptitudes that other people didn't. But the mother told me that she realized quite young that that she couldn't raise him the way you would raise a normal child. For example, she took him to an amusement park. And she said the whole time they were at the amusement park, he wasn't really engaging with the rides and the attractions. Instead, he was just watching her try to engage with the rides of the attractions. And, you know, he's a little kid, but he, at some point he, mm. he turns to her and says, are, are you having fun, mom? And she said she felt busted that she wasn't having fun. She was doing it because she thought this was the sort of thing a child would enjoy and that he wasn't clearly enjoying it. On the other hand, she published these abstruse articles on intersection of morality and the law. And she let him read one of them when he was, I know, very young again, like 10, 11 years old. And she said he started to kind of grill her about it. And the questions he was asking were better questions than the questions she got when she was peer reviewed. Gosh. So and you can imagine for that kind of child, school, primary school, secondary school being quite difficult, but them really coming to their own in university. Was that the case? Not really. He was able to go where he wanted to to college, uh, ended up going to MIT, but Sam, he had a kind of radical skepticism of his teachers through, through high school. I mean, he decided that English class was all baloney. About the time they stopped being about whether you could read a book and started to be about 
what your opinion about the book. And he found all these subjective uh, judgments of works of art to be completely ridiculous and pointless. There's this thing he wrote where he tries to make the argument that Shakespeare wasn't a good writer, that this is just everybody's subjective opinion. And if you actually think about it as a statistical matter, what are the odds that the greatest writer in the history of the world came out of this tiny population in England when only a handful of people were illiterate? You can imagine how irritating, interesting he might have been to his teachers. He continues this in college. And his, his grades are fine, but he's kind of like not present. And then I guess it's no surprise that he's the kind of person with that kind of mind who ends up working in financial trading quite quickly after he leaves university. Is that immediately a success? This is a really interesting moment in his life because up to the point he collides with high-frequency trading, they trade financial instruments. They trade stocks and bonds and currencies. It's called high-frequency because it happens a lot. Mm. Trading in the financial markets has ceased to be one person calling another to say, will you buy this from me? It's all done by, by computers. And these firms, the one that finds Sam is called Jane Street sit in the middle of the world's financial markets now. They make more money than any firms on Wall Street have ever made. And they are, they're looking for very mathy people, but mathy people who, who'd be the kind of person to be really good at counting cards at a casino. Yes. Who'd be good at blackjack in a casino. That kind of person. And Sam, up to the point that he really just almost accidentally collides with this industry, Sam had no sense of himself as being special because Although he was the best math student in his high school class, once he's with a group of like first class mathematicians his age, he realizes he's not particularly good. He's not going to be the best mathematician in the world. He's not better at chess than any than these people. He realizes that what he's good at are games that are irregular. So if instead of chess, you play chess with a timer, so you have to make your moves every five seconds. And someone on the side of the board is shouting a rule change every minute or so, so that all of a sudden pawns can fly, or queens become rooks, or whatever it is. This sounds dreadful. Yes, it does to me too, but not to him. It was catnip for him. And what was like this was trading in the markets. And it's not too much later that he then he leaves to set up his own firm, FTX, and, and stops high-frequency trading old-fashioned stocks and is actually trading cryptocurrencies. Correct. He's been at Jane Street for three years. They're giving him a million-dollar bonus. They're telling him that if he stays, that million-dollar bonus might one day be a $35 million bonus. Again, he's already discovered effective altruism. He's giving his money away that he makes. His purpose for being there, in his view, is to make as much money as possible and give it away. It's hard to imagine that there's a place where he could make more money, however he imagines it. He sees the market for cryptocurrencies and says, look, the high-frequency traders have not got there. They're not making these markets efficient. You can buy a a Bitcoin for $100 in Japan and sell it for $150 in South Korea and make the difference. If you go into that, you might make a lot of money. And so he doesn't do it with that. FTX is a crypto exchange. He does it with a, he creates a crypto hedge fund called Alameda Research. And that crypto hedge fund has as its mission, we're going to essentially become the first high frequency traders in crypto. And if we do this well, we will make not millions, but billions. So in this new world, he's got his own hedge fund. How old is he at this point? And how filthy (laughs) rich is he at this point? (laughs) So when he leaves, when he leaves Jane Street, he's 25, which makes him 
an elder statesman in the firm he creates because he hires a bunch of 21 and 22 year olds, all of whom are effective altruists, almost none of whom have any experience in financial markets. And at first he's not filthy. I mean, he's filthy rich and Jane Street has just paid him a million dollar bonus. He's that rich, but that's not rich enough. He's got bigger ambitions than that. It doesn't happen all at once. He starts his hedge fund in Berkeley, California, because Berkeley, California was this, really the, the financial center of effective altruism. He leaves Berkeley for Hong Kong at the end of 2018. He just goes to a, on a trip to, the, to Asia and finds that, well, the crypto, he knew that the crypto markets were largely there, but he discovered just how valuable it would be to physically be there. And so he uprooted the whole firm from Berkeley and moved it to Hong Kong. While they're in Hong Kong, several things happen. They create FTX, the exchange. Alameda gets bigger and bigger. But they're also under siege. The Chinese government starts arresting heads of crypto exchanges that are in China. There's some fear that they're going to move into Hong Kong and arrest the people who are running FTX. There are personal things going on in Sam's life that are making him uncomfortable there. And he travels to the Bahamas. What kind of thing? I want to play this a little lightly because he never put this into words. But there Mm. was this odd coincidence. One of his closest colleagues, who he had hired from Jane Street, Caroline Ellison takes a fancy to him. They begin a very peculiar relationship, romantic relationship. And the moment she wants to get really serious is when he decamps to Asia and oddly says, I'm, oh, hey, guys, I'm not coming back. So that, that's a one-off, except it happens yeah. again. It happens again. He insisted on keeping this relationship with her secret. She is by then running his hedge fund, Alameda Research, while he's trying to create this exchange, FTX. And in Hong Kong, her letters to him are pleading with him to, to let everybody know that they're a couple. And he's, he is phobic about having anyone know anything about his personal life, and particularly about having anyone know that he's involved with her. It's kind of at this moment that he takes this trip to the Bahamas. And once again, calls everybody back in Asia and says, sorry, guys, I'm not coming back. The whole company's moving to, to, to the Bahamas. So I think actually his therapist, who I spent some time with and who talked about this, actually thought that these were not just coincidences, that when things got hot with Caroline, he was a little more inclined to uproot and move the whole business. But on the face of it, the Bahamas move publicly is, is what? Because of regulation? On the face of it, it's slight fear of the Chinese government arresting him and a positive desire to be nearer the United States because it's becoming clearer that the American markets are the, are the great white whale and that whoever controls the American markets is going to control crypto. So through all of this point, you have been in contact with him. So when did you next meet him? I fly down to the Bahamas in early 2022, early last year and start to kind of embed. And at that point, Forbes says he's worth $22.5 billion. He thinks he's worth maybe twice that. He has not allowed Forbes to see everything that he has. And he's afraid that people knew how much he thought he was worth or how much he was actually worth. They'd find it so weird that they wouldn't believe him. So he's hiding his wealth. Coming up, how all of this dramatically and expensively unravels in just a few days. That's in a moment.
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So with this move to the Bahamas, there is an incredible microcosm of the whole issue with what he's doing, I guess, in that move because he sets about trying to build um an office a campus for his for his empire and the way he goes about that seems incredibly insightful in terms of how he operates or i guess doesn't operate as a person and a manager so the book is filled with these sort of anecdotes and i'll tell you the anecdote you can make of it what you will he arrives in the Bahamas. He's now got a company that's got, I don't know, 60, 70 people in it back in Hong Kong. He's moving all these people, many of them Chinese or Taiwanese, for their point of view, to the middle of nowhere, an island off the coast of the United States. He's got nowhere to put them. They have a temporary office, which is just some huts in the, essentially in the jungle. Someone, not Sam, says, we need, we need a proper office. And Sam says, go ahead and do it. Don't bother me with it. This is not worth my time. So his co-CEO, his name is Ryan Salem, goes and tells two young architects, both under the age of 30, one of whom he know, has met socially and who he had hired to like, help him build a vacation house in Bali. He hires these two people who've never done such a thing to build a corporate campus in the Bahamas using $350 million of FTX money. And the, the two architects, they fly to the Bahamas there's designing what is effectively going to be a mini city. They acquire five acres of land. They illegally clear the jungle off of it. It's a lovely spot. You know, it's right on the beach. But then they have to imagine, like, what is this enterprise? What do these people want from their office space? All of them are, as far as I can tell, are aesthetically dead. All the people in it, all of them say, we don't care, just build it. And the architects say, you think you don't care until you see it. So they're insistent on trying to divine these people's tastes and interests, and especially Sam Bankman-Fried's tastes and interests. Sam has no interest whatsoever. He thinks it's a waste of time. They're not even allowed to talk to him. Eventually, 
they deduce lots of things, like they don't like light on their computer screens. So even though they're being surrounded by beach, they've got to have good shades. They've got to have electrical outlets everywhere. They never leave their desks. They sometimes never leave their offices. So they have to have places to shower and sleep, all that stuff. But what they do with Sam is so funny is they just, they're so desperate for him, some guidance for him. And they badger people for so off, so long, they finally get given this short list. Here are the three things that Sam wants in his buildings, in his mini city. One was he wanted the mini city to be designed in the shape of an F if you were flying over it, because it was right, it was near, it was near the Bahamas airport. And he wanted people to see the FTX logo kind of flying into the Bahamas. The second was Sam had this wild Afro-like hair. The architects called it a Jufro. They said the second thing they were told is that they wanted, that Sam wanted the outside of all the buildings to evoke his Jufro, to like look like his hair. And they thought this is a weird request, but you know, actually it could make it quite cool. And the third thing they said, what they, they were told was Sam has acquired this object called a tungsten cube. And tungsten is, I'm told by fact checkers this is slightly wrong, but it's basically true. The densest metal on earth. And that a 14-inch cube weighed a ton. And that Sam had personally bought and flown into the Bahamas a one-ton tungsten cube. And he wanted it displayed prominently in an atrium in the main building of the campus. And so the architects actually design around this. Now, flash forward, I don't know, four months and there's a ceremonial groundbreaking with the prime minister of the Bahamas to, de- to sort of say, this is going to be the FTX mini city. And Sam Bankman-Fried rolls up for the dedication. Bunch of FTX people roll up with shovels to, to break the ground. Everybody's going to give speeches. And one of the architects, his name is Ian Rosenfeld, finally has a chance to talk to Sam about like what this mini city is. And he corners him. He says, he says, Sam, like, what do you know about what we've done? And Sam says, I don't know anything. And he says, so Ian said, so like, what do you actually want from these buildings? And Sam says, I don't care. He says, give me one thing you'd like. And he says, I'd like a badminton court. And at that point, Ian realized that the whole list had been given, the hair, the F, the tungsten cube, someone else had invented that on Sam's behalf. And they sort of tried to imagine what Sam might like. And Sam hadn't heard about any of it. And this is with a $300 million project. So it gives you some idea of how loosely run this enterprise was. And and you're there at this point. So even though we are on the cusp of what we now know has been the downfall of all of this and all of this crumbling, although you at this point don't know that yet, at, at that moment in time, did you smell bullshit? Could you see through some of this? Almost the opposite. I smelled comedy. I thought I'd walked into Ferris Bueller's day off. I knew from Sam's point of view, his indifference to what they were doing made a kind of sense because it was for him, it was just, we needed office space. It's $300 million. I make decisions that are three times this big twice a day. I can't be bothered with this. So what I thought was, this is funny. A bunch of kids all of a sudden have billions of dollars and the ambition is to generate tens of hundreds of billions of dollars to give it away for the sake of humanity. So they're, they are ignoring all these things that businessmen typically don't ignore. And the list of things they ignored and were quite open about ignoring was just shocking. I wasn't spending any time or effort trying to manage risk on FTX, trying, like, that obviously, that's that a was stunning a admission. What? That's a pretty stunning admission. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't know what to say. Like, 
what happened happened. You know, honestly, if I look back on myself, I think I got a little cocky. I made more than a little bit. And I was thinking, this sort of stress testing everybody's idea of how a business should run. Yeah. And I thought that's comedy. That feels, it feels like comedy. Where were you when the, when the situation finally started to sour and the success started to turn? It started with, with an article somewhere, didn't it? Or a tweet from somebody? It depends on who you talk to, where, what you would identify as the start of the unraveling. But there was, um, end of October of last year, a leak of what was Sam's hedge fund's balance sheet, Alameda Research. That in and of itself wasn't that damning because it clearly was not the full balance sheet. It was just some stuff. There was nothing on it I didn't know. So I was surprised mm. it had the effect that it had. The thing that really triggers the run on Sam's business and, and it, unraveling almost doesn't capture the spirit of it. it just collapsed in like moments. It went from being, you know, valued by venture capitalists as a $40 billion business, this exchange, to being bankrupt in a matter of days. And all it took was a rival, Cheng Panzhao, the CZ, head of a rival of the biggest crypto exchange, Binance, took the balance sheet and started to tweet about his suspicions that FTX was problematic. The part of the balance sheet that attracted attention was that one of the major assets inside of Sam's private hedge fund was this crypto coin called FTT. It was essentially stock in FTX, which depended entirely on the value of FTX and which Sam's hedge fund was using as collateral to borrow money, or it seemed to be. And so it, it just looked it just unusual. There was nothing actually illegal about it. All it took was a little doubt. And the people who had deposited money onto FTX, the people who were trading on FTX, started to pull their money off of it because they were scared. Because they'd seen other crypto exchanges unravel very quickly. No one suggested what the actual problem was until the actual problem <laughs> revealed itself. So the problem was there was 16 or $15 billion dollars owned by customers, customer deposits, should have been held on FTX that were actually inside of Sam Bankman-Fried's private hedge fund. Not all of the $15 billion, but most of them. And so people got a whiff of, oh, they're not going to be able to pay back the depositors if all the depositors flee at once. And so, of course, all the depositors fled at once. And so where was I, you asked? I had been in the Bahamas the end of October so I'd seen everybody and everything moments before it collapses. It collapses the first like 10 days of November. I had to come home for personal reasons. I basically turned right around and went back. And I got back there the day that Sam, alone in a dark room, signed the bankruptcy papers. The drama starts on like a Saturday or Sunday and it ends on a Friday, the following Friday. So I, the Bahamas I left, like six days earlier, had several hundred employees. They all thought they were making millions of dollars. They thought they had the most successful, fastest growing uh, crypto exchange in the world. Everything was hunky-dory. The Bahamas I came back to, everybody had fled. It fled so fast, the company cars were all piled up in the parking lot at the airport with the keys still inside. The fancy corporate apartments that they had rented and used as kind of worker housing were not only vacated, 
but vacated and leaving all of the occupants' possessions in them. You could have lived off what they left behind for a year. Food, alcohol, it was just a, a, a panic uh, the minute it started to go wrong. So, Michael, you get back to the Bahamas, everything has changed, and there is Sam in a darkened room signing bankruptcy papers, having lost $40 billion or so in days. When you found him there, how did he seem? Did he seem broken? No. In fact, this is going to sound odd to you, but I swear it's true. Of all the people in this drama, all the people, he seems the least affected. There was a brief moment when I landed. I was driving from the airport back to where he lived. I was with his personal assistant who was about to flee. Her name was Natalie. I said, Natalie, can we just stop in the old offices and see what's there? Because she said, everybody's gone. It's all gone. She was in tears. And she said, I, can't, I don't think we should do that because the police are already there and they may take the car away and they may arrest me. And I said, could we just glimpse? Let's just stop for a moment. And she said, okay. So we, we turned into the driveway leading into the, the office park with the jungle huts. And there was nobody there except in the distance you saw this figure walking circles around the buildings. And it was Sam. He was there all alone. He looked up, saw us. He almost treated us like he was an Uber we'd, he'd ordered. And he hopped in the back of the car and he was disoriented like badly disoriented. And he had just signed the bankruptcy papers and he was regretting it. And he was talking a mile a minute and was not really himself. But within 12 hours, he was himself again and he was as calm as he could be. And he's never been in anything but since then. It seems like you're quite sad at, at the turn of events, what's happened to him. It sounds like you had faith in what he was doing and are sort of somewhat upset now by, by how it's turned out. Is that right? His lawyer who's under investigation, who was the only grown-up on the scene, he's in his 50s, almost wept to me on the phone when we were talking about how he had gotten swept up in this, because he himself was not an effective altruist. He was just smitten by these young people who were. He said, I wanted there to be a Sam. And I completely understood the sentiment, that there was a certain joy that everybody saw. This is why 140 venture capitalists invested in his business and everybody wanted them to succeed. And he was the darling of Washington and of celebrities. And so everybody who met him took great pleasure from him and was impressed by the general thing he seemed to be trying to do, which was, I'm going to turn this weird world in which someone like me can make billions of dollars because I have this particular aptitude for finance. I'm going to take this and I'm going to use it to benefit Humanity, the existential risks that threaten humanity, pandemics and artificial intelligence and climate change, he had a list. And I'm going to direct the money into people that can do some good in these areas. And it, it was refreshing to have someone with such ambition. It was delightful, right? So you'd have to be kind of dark not to be rooting for him. But, I, you know, I'm not here to make an argument for and against. I'm really here to tell a story. Yeah, yeah. I, I just find the story is so revealing about how the world is now. And you can, t you can be cynical about it or you can be hopeful about it. But it's, it, this happened and it's amazing it happened. He's now sitting in a, in a cell somewhere waiting to go on trial for well, it's fraud, making illegal political donations and money laundering. 
even though your book's done and dusted, are, are you in touch with him still? Have you been in touch with him whilst he was in custody, or is, the, or is that job done for you now? No, I was in touch with him quite regularly. He, he was under house arrest at his parents' house on the Stanford campus, which is an hour from my house. And so I went down there every other week and spent hours and hours and hours with him. I was extracting information up until they put him in jail. And I, once he went to jail, I have not been in touch. I have not been able to, I've not been able to go in and see him. But he's in jail in Brooklyn and, and basically silenced since July. Officially, Sam Bankman-Fried's bail was revoked because the prosecution accused him of witness tampering. And so is it for us still, the reader, the listener, whoever, to judge whether he's an Icarus or a shyster? Or do you lean one way or the other? I don't lean one way or the other. There's a funny thing that's about to happen. It happens this week. Sam Bankman-Fried is about to go on trial in the Southern District of Manhattan. He might go away for 120 years. What is that trial? It's a war of two stories, a war between two stories, the story that the defense is going to tell and the story that the prosecution is going to tell, using very selectively the facts of the matter. None of them have any kind of context for the story. None of them knew Sam back when. None of them interviewed all the, all the characters in the drama. I had this privileged position. I met everybody involved. I interviewed everybody involved before and after it all fell apart. I can tell a better story than either side and include all the facts and then leave it to you, kind of the jury, to decide what you think of this. What about your friend from the very start, the one who actually set you going on all of this to go and see if he was a, if he was a decent investment? I mean, good grief, does that man still speak to you? <laughs> I don't know if he'll be asking my investment advice going forward, but we're still friends. You know, he's just mainly asked that I not throw around his name on interviews where where I'm promoting the book. Uh, Fair. That seems like a good term. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but here's, here's the problem. I've tried to explain to him since that he doesn't want to hear it. If you ask a writer to give you his judgment about a business decision, but then give him, present him with God's gift to writers in the form of this fantastic material. Very quickly, he's going to forget about the business judgment and just look and just be thinking about the literary opportunity. And so there was a conflict of interest that neither one of us had perceived. Let that be a warning to you. Keep authors away from your checkbook. Um, Michael Lewis, thank you very much indeed. (laughs) Thank you. You have been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Luke Jones, and my guest, Michael Lewis, journalist and author. Michael's latest book, Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon, is out today. You can get it in all good bookstores, especially The Times Bookshop, timesbookshop.co.uk. There is a discount there for Times Plus members. The producer today was Olivia Case. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an angle, an idea for a future episode, something you'd like to hear that you haven't heard us tackle, get in touch. Stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk is our email. Goodbye. Goodbye. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 